hideth us. He hideth us. Well, it's always a little bit of a daunting task to stand in this pulpit because of the great shoes that all of us have to fill when we do. And I told the first group that uh, Brother Greg has some experience on me that I don't have. He started preaching about the time I was playing with rattles in my crib, okay? So, so um, as I said, always, I, I always feel that I got big shoes to fill. However, you know, Brother Tim said the same thing last week, and I respect Brother Tim quite a bit as a good man of the faith, and what a great word he brought, amen, last week. We were on vacation. Thank you for letting us get away there. We were out in Utah, beautiful scenery out there if you ever get a chance to go, but was blessed by that word from Brother Tim. And I know, as I said earlier, Brother Greg's itching to be back here to preach to you next week. But today we're going to be looking at Psalm 34. If you have a little handout in your bulletin, you can follow along with us as we go through it. But while you're turning there, I want to ask you if you can recall a moment in your life in which you went into a circumstance thinking you knew what was going to happen. You, you scheduled something, and maybe it was, you know, getting married, and you thought it was going to be a perfect marriage, or you did, you know, anything. You scheduled it, you put it on the calendar, and you thought it was just going to result in one thing, but in reality, something quite different happened, and by quite different, usually I mean in our eyes something that we didn't find favorable as the outcome. Well, recently, we celebrated 4th of July, right, and all of us light off some fireworks. Well, I saw on social media a video uh, from a family's home security camera that was quite interesting. If you have a dark sense of humor, you may have laughed a little bit. But what happened was they thought they were going to have a great day of fireworks. They All in their front yard, the security camera captures them, set up their chairs, and guys out on the sidewalk lighting one. Well, unfortunately, one of the fireworks that he lit went the wrong way. And boom, shot towards the group. Luckily, none of them were hurt, but they all scattered and ran out of the way. And good thing they did because one of the sparks also ignited the stockpile of other fireworks that were sitting right behind the bumper of their minivan. So what they started off doing, a wonderful evening of fireworks, ended with a massive explosion of fireworks that I could not believe. You almost have to see it to believe it. It was insane, blowing up all over the place, Luckily, no one was hurt, and no vehicles were hurt either. But wow, what a great example of how something that we have even innocent expectations on can just be flipped upside down in an instant. Now, life does this frequently to us, doesn't it? As I said, we think we have things figured out. We think we know what's around that corner. But time and time again, we're brought to our knees, aren't we, with the realization that we're not the ones in control. God is in control over all events. He even had to remind the great characters of the Bible this. And today we're going to talk about King David and him reminding him that he, God, is always in control. We know David was an imperfect man. We know he made numerous mistakes, most notably his sin with Bathsheba. But as God does in our lives too, he takes even our mistakes and he molds those into opportunities for good that we can then glorify him through. It's amazing how he does it. Well, there was an event that happened to David that matches this pattern. He had an expectation of what he thought was going to happen, but instead something ended up happening differently. And as a result, he had to hide and seek. And that's the title of my sermon today, Hide and Seek. Let's see what this example of David's life in which he was forced into this 
not forced, but willing actually to hide and seek. It's Psalm 34. Now, you've turned there, but before verse one, you see a little italicized portion. It says, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. What in the world? Let me read that again. That's kind of a statement there. It takes a second to soak in. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now, if you already know this story, it makes sense. But if you don't know, there was a time in which the King Saul was very much intimidated by David's prowess. And he was jealous of how David was able to, uh, you know, have military prowess and success. And so he uh, transpired to kill David. And this is accounted in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So I think we need to zip back here and look at this account in which he was pretending to be mad and see what that means because it's gonna really help make Psalm 34 be that much more significant. So hold your place in Psalm 34 and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. Now again, he has found out about this plot from his friend Solomon. He said, hey, Saul is going to have you killed. You need to run. You need to hide or you will die. And so David, he goes on the run. Let's see what he does and where he goes. Verse 10, chapter 21, Samuel, 1 Samuel 21. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of, the king of Gath. Now, Achish is another word for Abimelech that we saw in Psalm 34. But most important, it's that you know he's the king of the Philistines. In other words, we don't know exactly why, but David runs to the enemy's camp. You might think, what in the world is he doing? My best guess is if you're in fear for your life, you're thinking Saul is gonna look for me in all places that I am safe. Let me go to the one place where he would never think I would go. That's my guess. So he goes here thinking, I guess, that he would blend in. He had these intentions, but look what happens. Verse 11, and the servants of Achish said to him right away, they said, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So they basically at this moment, they captured him. Another Psalm later in the Psalm says he was captured. It doesn't say it in this context, but he was captured, brought to the king. And it says, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so you can already see where this is going. He is already seeing this is turning upside down. He's been captured. What is going to happen to him when they, re when he, they realize he's David, the one who killed Goliath, their most fearsome warrior? So to get out of this scenario, verse 13, he says, he changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let saliva fall down on his beard. Literally, he does the most crazy thing you could think of. He, he has nothing left to do but to say, I'm just gonna pretend to be insane and hope they let me go. And would you believe it? It works. It works. It says here that Achish said to his servants, look, you, the man you brought me is insane. Why have you brought me him? Have I need of madmen that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow be in my house? Basically, pff, get him out of here. This isn't David. And so then verse or chapter 21 tells us what David does now. Therefore, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. David, as we said, is literally, literally hiding. He 
He's on the run for his life, taking shelter now in a cold, dark, dreary cave. And so David, you know, after all this stuff that's happened to him, wouldn't it be so easy for David to be bitter and angry and confused? It would, but that's not what he does, is it? No, Psalm 34, back to Psalm 34, it tells us what he does. It says, after he pretended madness, he wrote this psalm. And we're gonna see the power that is contained in this response, the power that while he is hiding physically, he is also hiding spiritually in the Lord. He has put himself behind the power of the Lord to lead him down life's darkest circumstances, seeking him along the way, saying, Lord, I bless you through all of it. I trust you through all of it. You are sovereign through all of it, and I will not be afraid. So let's read these verses here, and let's see how this hiding and seeking is done. And then we're going to uh, go through the verses verse by verse and see how we too can hide and seek in the Lord. Okay, Psalm 34, let's read each verse. It says, after that introduction, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. It's probably more profound know that now that you know the exact circumstance that preceded this. You know that David's literally running for his life in fear of death, hiding in a cold, dark, and dreary cave. And I kind of want to make a disclaimer before we go through these verses. It's not that you are to compare your life struggles to what David's going through. That would be impossible really to do because many of us will never have to run for our lives in fear of death from somebody. And we'll probably never have to seek refuge in a cold, dark cave. And so we know that this is not written for you to have a comparison mindset. 
But we do that from time to time, don't we? We are guilty of comparing our struggles to other people and even sometimes saying, why are they complaining about that? My struggle was worse than theirs. We think these things, don't we, sometimes? But the Bible tells us that we are never to compare. We're all at times scared, anxious, alone, feeling worried or exposed or hesitant, and no matter what the circumstance. And God never compares two trials and said, this trial's worse than this one. What he does is says, all those who are heavy laden come to him for rest. And so whatever trials in your life right now that's bringing you pain, I know it's real. God knows it's real and he loves you. He wants you to seek him. Psalm 34 is how you can do it. But may we always, may we always point people to Jesus. Because if we don't point people to Jesus, then those feelings of bitterness and anger and comparison are just gonna creep in there. And there's no room for that when people are suffering. Point them to God rather than comparing. All of us are gonna get rained on. You know, I follow the financial advice of Dave Ramsey. He loves this metaphor. Hey, you need an umbrella in your life because it's gonna rain. And that's similar to life circumstances. We're not promised a perfect life. It's going to rain. And our umbrella then is the word of God, isn't it? We hold up the word of God and we're protected. We're sheltered from the darkness of this world. When life rains down on you, maybe again with finances and you're worried about where or how you're going to pay your bills. Maybe you're losing your job. They've already told you you're getting, your job is gonna be gone or you've already lost it. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks, teetering on the brink of divorce or worse, maybe it has already ended and you're going through that dark trial. Maybe a health journey is on your you know, horizon. You, you've been told by the doctors that something related to your health is, is wrong and now you walk that path. Maybe you have lost a loved one today and that, that sense of potential fear is gripping you. Maybe you've lost a relationship. Maybe you are in a sin struggle. There are so many storms of life and so we, we can't compare. We can't say, oh man, David went through that. I'm, I gotta stop whining. No, we take our suffering, we take our pain, we take our anguish, we put it at the feet of the cross. And we say, Lord, I depend on you through all of it to get me through this trial. God is present and we must hide in him. Now you say, how, Cody? Like, let's get to the specifics. How do we hide in him? Because that's often the hardest part, isn't it? When something bad happens to you, what's our first instinct often? It's to complain. It's to say, why is this happening? It's to turn to things of this world to solve our problems. How many people tell you, hey, read this book, that'll help you out. I'm not against books, but this is the only book that's gonna have the permanent answers. The, the self-help books on Amazon might solve a problem of tempor temporary nature, but this is the only book that is going to permanently give you peace. What about people? Therapists and counselors, those are all great things. God has given us great people to help us through trials and struggles. However, the great counselor is the only one to deliver us permanent peace. We must seek him. What about medicine, diet, and exercise? I need a lot more of that, okay? But that's not gonna be my permanent solution. I gotta seek the Lord. I have to follow his word. And this is where we're getting to that. In Psalm 34, we're gonna see four ways that we can hide in him. I think you're gonna to leave today with a better confidence that you can put yourself behind the sovereign leading of God throughout any storm of your life. You can be confident leaving today that you can hide in him for protection. Let's see the first one. God's people hide in him by blessing him, by blessing him. 
And if you have that uh, piece of paper in your bulletin, those are down there. You can jot down anything else as well. Blessing him, it would, as we said, be easy for someone in David's predicament to turn from God, to curse him, to walk a different path, right? But is that what we see David doing, to be bitter and angry and, or just even just jump right in and say, Lord, I need this right now? Of course not. That's not what we read. We read in the Psalm that he starts with a blessing. Look at the verbs. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Then he says, I will, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Verse three, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name. Four powerful verbs, bless, boast, magnify, exalt. All of these lifting high the name of Jesus. Like I said earlier, when we are encountering a, encountering a problem in our life, the first instinct is often not to bless God. If you go out to your car and you're in the middle of winter and you start it and click, nothing happens. What's our first thought? <clears throat> you know, kick the tire or something, walk away angry. Maybe we should think, God, thank you for this car that's in my driveway. And thank you that you've given me the ability to pay for someone to fix it or, you know, find a way to fix it. So blessing God, it has to be an instinct. It has to be something that we go to first. David here, of all people, could be, could be just saying, oh, I'm so cold and lonely. But no, he blesses God. You know, when the world around us sees us blessing him when things are dark in your life, isn't that one of the greatest witnesses and testimonies that you could possibly have? You know, I'm gonna mention Brother Tim later on again, but when he broke his back, that could be a time for the world to curse God and say, there is no God. Why would he break my back? But Brother Tim has that perspective that God brings us sovereignly through trials so that we can test our faith and verify that his existence is real in our lives. I knew a family that lost their mother, age 55, I believe, to cancer at our old church. And uh, the, the, man, the son was my age, and, and it was really hard thing for me to grasp, man, losing my mom to cancer. I'm so sorry. And he was like, totally okay with it. And he actually told me the story. He said, you know what? Mom's a believer. Actually, we were in hospice with her towards the end. And we were laughing so much playing Uno and other card games that the nurses came in and were like, you know, this is hospice, right? You guys are, how come you're so happy? And they were able to tell that nurse that because they had no fear of where she was going and that they would see her again, they were going to spend her last days happy. And they were able to witness to the nurse about Jesus because of their happiness. And so when we turn to God in tragedy and bless him and show our attributes of being happy and joyful, then man, what a witness that can be. Now let's dig into the actual ver the words, the verbs themselves. He says, praise continually will be in my mouth. In other words, never stop praying. Never give up on your life and your storms that you're going through. Keep praying. You know, the Bible says in many places, pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Offer yourselves continually as a sacrifice. Hope continually. I will ever sing praises. You know, there are so many verses in the Bible that say, don't stop praising the Lord. Don't stop praying to the Lord. Keep it a continual thing. Keep praising the Lord no matter what. He is good through all of it. And when we get to boasting in verse two, it's also mentioned with humility. And that can at first be like, what? How can you boast and be humble? Because it says, I'll make my boast in the Lord and the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Well, the key is that 
you're boasting in the Lord. This is the opposite of boasting. Boasting is pride. Boasting is arrogance. Boasting is lifting myself up, saying I'm a big shot. Boasting in the Lord is saying I am nothing. I am unworthy of any gift, let alone the greatest gift, which is Jesus. That's what boasting in the Lord is. And thus, when you boast in the Lord, you are a humble servant and you are glad. And then in verse three, the the final verbs here that he blesses the Lord with is magnification and exaltation. To magnify and to exalt literally mean to zoom in and make big. I'm gonna lift high the name of Jesus no matter what in my prayers, in my private life, and in my public life. I'm gonna live for Jesus and I'm gonna make his name big. I'm gonna magnify and I'm gonna exalt. I'm reminded of the song, this little light of mine, I'm gonna what? Let it shine, hide it under a bushel, No, right? It's a great little kid's song that we teach our kids to never shy away from magnifying the name of Jesus. But do we do that? I think we do. I think we often shy away from talking about the Lord publicly. Why? Why are we so hesitant to magnify and exalt God in public? I think probably number one is fear of judgment from other men. Fear fear of thinking about what people would think of us we pray in public or talk to our coworkers about Jesus, maybe they'll not like me anymore. Maybe we're afraid of, you know, ruining, like I said, a relationship. You know, I know what he believes. So I'm just not gonna go there and ruin that relationship. Or maybe from good intentions, you're like, I don't wanna mess up my delivery of the gospel. I just am not a preacher and I don't wanna go there with faith. I want everybody to look at me. You can't mess up where a sinner is already going. They're already going to hell without the gospel. You can't mess it up by telling them about Jesus in any way that you tell him. Tell them about Jesus. The worst thing that could happen is that they now hear the name of Jesus and it's planted in the stony soil. The best thing that could happen is that that name of Jesus in that stony soil, the soil becomes fertile and grows and they learn about Jesus and they learn to love him and they give their life to him. You can't mess up giving someone the good news. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus in public. Magnify his name. Now, the second way we can hide in God is by seeking him, which you knew was coming because that's the name of the sermon, hide and seek. And seeking him is is specifically in the three verses, four, five, and six. It says, I sought the Lord and he heard me, delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him, they were radiant, their faces were not ashamed, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Even goes plural so that we can just apply this as when we look to God, he radiates back on us his light. When we seek the Lord, he hears us and delivers us. Rest assured, whenever you call out to God, it's not falling on any deaf ear. He is hearing all of it. He is delivering you through all of it. Seeking the Lord involves us turning our every instinct, our every sense towards his direction our voice, our eyes, our heart, our mind, even our taste is mentioned in a little bit. Verse eight, we seek him by talking to him and praying him. As I said, we look on him and he shines on us. You know, I don't know about you, but I hate when I go down the stairs and I forgot to flip the light switch and now I'm guessing in my own house where to go. And what always happens, bam, my toe gets stubbed, right? Darkness is just a breeding ground for pain and suffering. But God is the opposite of that. 
he radiates upon his children such that there is just, boom, full light and you can see it all. There is no fear to follow after him when he has illuminated everything. Now, our state of emotional poverty, verse 6, we're poor in spirit. He blesses those who are poor in spirit, we know from the Beatitudes. But our poverty of spirit cries out, and that is when he saves us from our troubles. Rest assured, you can't be saved if you think you're good as you are. You can't be saved if you think you're going to get riches of this world and be full of them. You can only be saved when you realize you are poor in spirit and broken and in debt to the Lord because of your sin. And you realize your emptiness and you realize your poverty and you then realize, thank the Lord, Jesus paid it all already. That's when he fills you up. He gives you his spirit. He supplies all your need anyway. There is no want, as we're gonna talk about in a second. But don't seek after being filled with riches of this world or things of this world. Come to the Lord in a state of emptiness. The gospel tells us that we are all sinners. All of us come short of God's glory. We must come to him broken. I love that song, I come broken. I come empty. We must come to the Lord in that way. There's no other way to the Lord than through Jesus, and there's no other way than by being empty and needing him to fill us. When we seek the Lord, I think this is how we fulfill the greatest commandment. Jesus said, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. That is seeking. True seeking is when we turn every instinct and sense to loving him. Guys, if we take our eyes off of Jesus... How can we expect to be molded into what he wants us to be? It's not like we can just look away from him and live our lives however we please and expect to be molded into a better servant. The only way he's going to mold us into a better servant is by making eye contact with him, locking eyes. He's looking at you already. Turn your eyes, I love that song too, turn your eyes upon Jesus and then he'll mold you into the image and likeness that he wants you to be. But don't live your life without turning your eyes to him and loving him and seeking him. Thirdly, we hide in God by trusting in him and fearing him. I'm going to group trusting and fearing together because the text kind of jumps around and also because I think they are related, trust and fear. Verse 7, it tells us the first mention, the angel encamps around those who fear him. We're, we receive that protection, that encampment, and, and we are delivered. And then in verse 11, he actually says, come you children. He calls us children. Listen to me. I will teach you of the fear of the Lord. You know, by calling us children, I think that's profound because children are sponges. They just soak up everything, don't they? I think my own kids, man, they just soak it all up. And I better be careful what I say around them sometimes. If it's not great, they'll repeat it, won't they? Um, but, you know, we're children. We soak up things, but it also gives us another powerful analogy when you think about earthly fathers. How many of you had a father that you feared growing up, you know? All right, and you, you didn't fear him, hopefully, in the way that a lot of people paint fear nowadays with fathers, that they're abusive, and they could be. I mean, they very well could be. That's terrible. But the kind of fear that we all had growing up wasn't abuse, no. It was discipline with an intent to live out what God calls to us to do, and that's to raise our children in the Lord, understanding that there are expectations, there are standards, there are, we are subordinate to those in leadership over us. And so thus we had fear of them. Not a tragic fear, but a fear that the Bible describes, a respect, an adoration, a reservation, a sense of humility, and a trust. 
I'm, I'm sad to report that I think you already know this. A lot of children these days don't fear any authority. They don't fear their parents. They don't fear teachers. And as a result, society continues to degrade and degrade. It's a, it's a family issue. It's a moral issue that's occurring in our country. People can point to whatever item they want, whether it be guns or whatever else. Rest assured, it's the degradation of the moral fabric of our nation, the lack of instilling fear of the Lord in children, and then kids that don't fear their fathers in, in result. But anyway, we'll move on now to the spiritual fear, the fear that we have towards our heavenly father. This kind of fear, again, as I said, is a sense of humility, and it's a sense of trust. When I was in fear of my father, the same one who could crack my thigh if I was wayward, I also could grab his hand knowing that he would strongly lead me through life and keep me safe. I had no doubt my father's strong hands could protect me just as they could discipline me. And that's what we get from the Lord. He brings us through trials. Hebrews says that he will chasten those whom he loves. He will discipline you as his child. He will bring trials upon you. You will suffer for his name. The apostle Paul suffered for his name. He was shipwrecked, beaten, tortured, and thrown in prison. But all of this leads us to protection. He encamps those who fear in him, verse seven. He delivers us. We're gonna talk about deliverance in a second. It's not always what we want, is it? Deliverance in our way and in our terms and our desires. No, no, no. We'll talk about that in just a second. But when we fear the Lord and trust in him, it's this beautiful, beautiful aroma and, and taste metaphor that we can just feel that goodness. Verse eight says, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. I love dove chocolates, those little uh, square dove, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. And I love all the flavors, raspberry, milk, dark, any of them, caramel filled. Okay. I'm making everybody hungry. But my favorite part of those is that you put them on your tongue and let them melt. It's a cardinal sin to just chomp a dove chocolate. If you do that, just leave. No, I'm just kidding. But you taste and see the goodness of that chocolate, and it just melts layer by layer, and wow, Dove knows what they're doing in that chocolate. But how much of a failure is that metaphor to God's goodness, right? It's not even close. God's goodness is far beyond the greatest chocolate we could find. He reveals his goodness, though, to us, similar to that chocolate. Layer by layer across our lives, it's melting out, and even though we might run out of chocolate or maybe we hit a storm of life, God will find a way to fulfill that goodness in us as we realize how good he is even in those dark times. You know, how many of you know the song, It Is Well With My Soul? Okay, now if you didn't know the story behind it, if you do know the story behind it, raise your hand, I'm curious. Okay, excellent, excellent. Okay, so I won't go too much into it, but you know that Philip Bliss wrote this song after he lost his entire family in a boating accident. They were, the ship sank. He lost his wife and his daughters. And instead of begroaning his current estate, he says, it is well with my soul. He says, though Satan should buffet me, though trials come my way, it is well with my soul. I will taste and see your goodness through it all. What a testimony. Now, when we trust in the Lord and fear him, he will supply our needs. Verses eight and nine, there is no want to those who fear him. That's once again, a great analogy to our earthly fathers. How many of your fathers, you may have not had a lot growing up, but did you have everything you needed? They saw that, didn't they? They saw that you had food in your belly. 
It maybe wasn't a lot or the type you wanted, but you had food on your table. You had a roof over your heads. Your father did what he could. I pray that you had a father like that because that's what God does for us. It maybe won't be the most luxurious life. It maybe will be filled, well, it will be filled with bumps and hiccups, but we know that he will supply our needs. So long as he wants us to be alive, he will supply the need to do so, to sustain us. We're not left out to dry. We're not like a lion in verse 10 that's suffering hunger. I can't get my own food. What do I do? That's not the Christian way. That's not the Christian life. He will be that strong lion to bring you what you need. In your hour of darkness, rely on him and trust that, hey, I am a little lion that can't get my own. So God, I'm just gonna sit back and wait for you to bring me what I need to get through this. Once again, it's easy to think about what God doesn't provide in our trials, isn't it? We, we often do that, don't we? Man, God, you, you know, you, you took this, but why do I still have this burden or whatever? You know, um, I, you know, so many analogies that you're living through in your lives right now, you could think of the things he doesn't provide, couldn't you? But this is not fruitful. This is not beneficial. Instead, we counter these thoughts by reminding ourselves of what God does provide. He sustains us with what we need even through those times of trial. Now, fearing the Lord brings several things in the later verses of this section. It says a long and fruitful life in verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And this is to say, not that you're guaranteed a long number of years. Praise the Lord that Aline lived 98 of them. But we also have many of our family and friends who went home to be with the Lord at an age that we felt was too young, right? We know that. That breaks our hearts when we lose young believers, but we know that then it can't mean a guarantee of a long number of years, but what it, I think it does mean is not how many, but how you spend those years, how you spend those days. If you live your days for the Lord, he will fill them with his blessings. He will fill them with his goodness. And however many you have, it will be the fullness that he intends. But if you live your days for evil, they will be empty, they will be dark, they will be short, and your life will zip by with no purpose, no meaning, no direction. So that's not what we want. We want verse 12. We want those full days where we can, be, uh, we can desire life and he can uh, fill us with his goodness. Okay, then it says in verse 13, that if we fear the Lord, a mouth is given to us that speaks good and truth. And, and then feet in verse 14 that depart from evil. How often have you sat down at a group and the first thing they do is talk about people who aren't there in a negative way? The world around us, that's what they're inclined to do is to have mouths that speak deceit. May we never participate in discussions like that where you know, we're talking ill of other people. No, pursue good things. Keep uh, evil out of your lips. Keep your lips away from deceit. Rest assured, by the way, if people are talking about other people when they're not there, they're gonna talk about you when you get up and leave. Surround yourself with others who lift high the name of Jesus with their words and speech and, and get away from relationships and where putting down others is viewed as entertainment. It's not entertainment, it is sin it's deceit. May we have lips that depart from that and also feet that depart from evil and pursue instead peace. Once again, how true of the fallen world around us. Look at all the destruction and the turmoil and the lack of peace and the wars that we have and the discontentment in this country. 
There is no other way to perfect peace than through Jesus. We cannot expect to seek that perfect peace if we go down the world's path. We must have feet that pursue peace and the goodness of God. Now, all of these actions that spring forth of fear, they embody the spirit of trust once again. Trust in God to deliver us. Trust in him, though the same one that can discipline us, also, as I said, leads us through, and the least then we can do is live for him. It's not only the least we can do, it's also a command to live for God, validating then his works in our life, showing the world around us that we have a trusting relationship with the Savior of the world. And finally, we hide in the Lord by crying out to him, crying out to him. These are the last verses here, and they're probably the most comforting in the chapter because they talk about what deliverance looks like in the child of God. They're also the, the most sobering because they offer the stark contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. So first, who are the righteous? Well, in the Bible, we're told that those are God's children. In the Old Testament, the, the, the nation of Israel, those were the righteous, the God's children. And then in our lives, we are righteous when we come to Christ. He gives us the righteousness of Christ, Romans 5, 17. And thus we strive to live for him, but not because of works, okay, that earn us any favor, but rather we live for him because the righteousness that flows from us shows, as I said, others what he's done and it points them to him. So we have his righteousness. We are the righteous. And who are the unrighteous? Well, those are the ones who refuse him, who don't turn to him, who don't submit to him, who think they can go through this life on their terms, who think that, that you know, they have nothing to submit to. Those are the unrighteous. And we're going to see these two groups referred to. And boy, I pray that before you leave today, you will be found and counted among the righteous. Because if you're not, the opposite is quite, uh, quite scary uh, based on the text. So first, uh, the righteous. His eyes are on us, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on you. You are never alone. He's watching and guiding every step. Does anybody like the show on the History Channel, Alone? It's, it was from a few years ago. Uh, it's very fascinating, actually. They take a group and they say, okay, the goal is you survive alone in a remote location and the last person to quit gets half a million dollars. And they're like, okay, I got this. So they give them a satellite phone so that if they want to quit, they can call and have a helicopter pick them up. But other than that, they just have a small survival kit and a camera to record their survival attempt. Well, you know, it doesn't take long before people to realize that when you're alone, it's harder to go on than what you expect. You think you can do it alone, but you really can't. The end is not pleasing. And so if the Christian life were a show, which I hate to say it like that because it is real, okay, but if it were, it would be not alone, it was simple, but it would be the opposite. It would be not alone. If you've gone through our Sunday school classes, uh, if you're not involved in one, man, get involved in one. We got so many good ones, but most of us went through the Holy Spirit and how we're never alone. Because God has given us his spirit to guide us, we are never alone in this life. He is always watching us, guiding every step. His ears are open to our cry. Like I said at the beginning, when you call out to him, it's not gonna fall on deaf ears. Now, this is just a joke. This is a disclaimer coming up, okay? So don't, don't take it wrong, men. But ladies here, how many times when you call, call out to your husband, do they say, uh-huh, and uh, later on you ask them, did you do that? And they're like, what are you talking about? Right, ladies? Okay. Now, men, same thing. It can happen in, in reverse. We maybe think the other has heard us, 
what I'm trying to illustrate is that in our earthly relationships, even in our closest one, husband and wife, we fail each other. We don't listen perfectly. We think we try to, but even if we try to, we will fail in our perfect listening skills. The only perfect listener is God. He hears every cry. He hears every struggle. He hears every pain, and he will answer us in his way, and that is deliverance. This is the last way when we cry out, he delivers us and saves us. Verses 17 and 19 mention how the righteous receive deliverance. You know, that our afflictions are many. That's not gonna be a doubt. You will have many afflictions in your life, but his deliverance is guaranteed in all of them. It's not maybe he'll deliver me. It's he will deliver me. But this is the key. He'll deliver you how he wants to. It's his will, his timing, and his prerogative. We can't expect deliverance to look a certain way. That's when we get the outcome that I started with. We think things are gonna go a certain way. That's our own version of deliverance. That's us wanting a certain result. We must sit back and say, God, you got this. I trust in your deliverance. It's then that we will see what his deliverance looks like. The whole concept is that we would let go of our own attempts to solve things and fully trust in him who has it all figured out anyway. Think of David as an example. He didn't want to pretend to be insane, but God had him sovereignly do that so that he would escape and be alive, so that he would fulfill other things that God had him to do. And rest assured, he will keep you alive until your earthly work is done. Brother Tim, he has more work to do. He was spared. The trial that he was brought through wasn't without pain, but he's here with us. And I'm excited to see what God will continue to use Brother Tim for. And as he quoted Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. We can't quote that verse if we don't believe all means all. All things, even those dark times, even the times when you lose things you love or go through pain that you don't want, he will work it together for good. Now, verse 20, where it says not a bone will be broken, I think there's two interpretations of this. First, it's not that we won't have broken, broken bones, but that his deliverance will be so perfect that one day our perfect bodies will be delivered to him without a broken bone. But rest assured, I think this is also a messianic prophecy, that not a bone of Jesus was broken. It fulfilled that promise as he died on the cross, not with a broken bone of his broken. God will deliver us perfectly unto him. Salvation is mentioned in verse 18. Verse 22, no condemnation. The best deliverance we could possibly receive is the forgiveness of our sins. And if you're a believer, he's already done that for you. And one day you will be brought into his presence like our sister Aline is now. That's why we're so excited today. She's with him in a perfect place where there is no more crying or pain or suffering. That is deliverance. That is often what God wants to do, is deliver us that way. And death is often viewed as a sad and, and, and gloomy thing and just a disappointment. But Paul writes that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And, and in Psalm 116, it says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In other words, it's a good thing when Christians die and go to heaven. That deliverance is good. Yes, it's hard for us on earth. Yes, we miss these people, but it's good because deliverance in God's way, if it looks like that, is bringing, him to, bringing us to him permanently. Now, I'm gonna close with the contrast that he gives to the unrighteous. This is in the text, and I'm a believer that if you go verse by verse, you have to highlight those verses that are uncomfortable to talk about. What does God say he will do to the unrighteous? Verse 16, 
The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He will cut them off from their remembrance from the earth. He will cut them off remembrance from the earth. You know, we're all just a couple generations away from being completely forgotten on this earth. I mean, walk through any cemetery and you'll see a tombstone of someone who nobody remembers anymore. If you are unrighteous, that will be your only future. You will become a forgotten person, memory cut off from the earth. But if you are a righteous person in the Lord, he has given you hope and a future. He knows you by name and he will have you forever be with him. That's an identity that I want, not being forgotten by the one who really matters, the eternal creator. Evil will slay the wicked. In other words, those who pursue evil, it's so destructive that they can't escape its own destruction. It will destroy them. It says in the Bible that, you know, there's joy in sin for a season. It also says that the end is the way of death of that sin, Proverbs 14, 12. So their own evil will consume them. And then finally, the unrighteous will be condemned, verse 21. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So I think it's important that we talk about all of God's attributes, not just the ones that we find favorable. God's vengeance and justice and wrath are in the Bible. I saw a video once that said, How, why does God send people to hell? And, and that's already an inflated question that atheists try to do. But the guy answered it, he started off wrong. He said, well, God doesn't send people to hell. And, and you know, while he was partly right that our sins separate us from God, Rest assured that God's the one with the ultimate decision on who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. The Bible clearly said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. In Matthew 7, 22, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. God is in control of who is saved and who is not. He will cast out evildoers into the lake of fire, Romans 20, 15. And so may we not be found only talking about the love of God and failing to talk about his justice. Yes, of course, we wrap that up in the package that he is love and he doesn't want them to go there. And that might be confusing to some people. Well, how do these attributes all work together? He's God and we're not, that's how, okay? All of his attributes are perfectly united such that he doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But at the same time, he will execute wrath on those who practice evil. I don't want any of you here today to face that judgment. I don't want anybody here today to live their life thinking they're good enough that to get through life's darkness, they'll just uh, read another book and then they'll go to, you know, they'll die at the end of their life and they'll have left a good mark on society. Most of us will be completely forgotten. Those that are remembered in history books without the Lord, they don't have eternal life either. We must seek the Lord. We must avoid this punishment by becoming righteous, placing our faith and trust in him. And so my conclusion question is, are you hiding and seeking today in God? Do you need to confess that you haven't been? Do you need to rededicate your life to the Lord this morning by putting your eyes on him? Because let me tell you this, like I said, he hasn't taken his eyes off you. He's still watching you and yearning for you to turn your life back to him. So you can come forward and rededicate your life. Or maybe you, as I said, are unrighteous and need the Lord this morning. You've realized that, oh, that's why my life has not had a point to it. I haven't been seeking the true answer, which is Jesus. Now's the best time to do that. Now's the time to make it right and to say, Lord, I accept through faith your work on the cross. And with that, I know that you will encamp me and guide me through my whole life. And while it won't be a perfect bumpy or bump-free road, you will be there every step of the way until you eternally deliver me. Now, sometimes God does deliver us from trials. 
I forgot to really mention that. That does happen. We can pray for that. Pray for God to work miracles. But we must also be ready for the deliverance in which he says, my way, not yours. And so again, if you're here this morning and you wanna give your life to Christ or come forward for prayers to rededicate, now's the time. Let's stand and go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll sing. God, I thank you so much for this church and our ability to, uh, through you, to come here today and worship you. I pray that this word from Psalm 34 is, has been found to be true and, and from, you know, from your word, truth. God, I pray that it will fall upon the ground uh, that is out here today that is fertile, that it will grow, and that there are some here right now who are considering coming forward to place their faith in you. I pray that you would remove any hesitancy that they might have and that they would open up to your free gift you've given, which is Jesus who died for our sins. Father, please, if there's any here today that are thinking about responding, allow them to do so while we stand and sing. Amen. All right. So as the song says, just as I am as a sinner, he's asking you to come. Now's the time. Just as I Once again, I want to thank you for being here. It's been a great day to worship together. Uh, thank you for coming. And uh, let's just be dismissing a word, and then we'll go forward this week living for Jesus. If there's that darkness in your life right now, just rest assured he's with you. Show others. Show others he's with you. Live it out this week. Be the gospel. Let's go to the Lord.